Are you new to coaching? Starting out as a coach can be incredibly overwhelming, especially when you aren't given much direction from your administration. That's why I created the New Coaches Playbook. It includes a roadmap to help you start building your coaching foundation and a guide to seven podcast episodes in order that will give you the steps and ideas you need to build relationships, define your role, communicate with your admin, and make a plan to start coaching. Coach, what's your instructional coaching personality type? Have you ever wondered what superpowers make you a really strong coach? and what areas you can strengthen with just a little bit of direction? Well, now you can find out. I created the What's Your Instructional Coaching Personality Type Quiz to help you answer this very question. Just head to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q to take the two-minute quiz and get your coaching personality type sent right to your inbox. Even better, you'll get a playlist of podcast episodes handpicked just for you to help you hone your superpowers and strengthen your areas of growth. I'm so excited to share this quiz with you, so don't wait to take it. Go to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q and learn so much about your coaching style. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey, coaches, and welcome to episode 123. Today, we are continuing our dialogue about coaching cycles, but we're going to focus in on something really important. Uh, last, last week, we talked a little bit about using data to drive our coaching cycles, and today, we're going to address something that every coach knows. Learning doesn't happen when classroom management is not in place. So one way we can support teachers and students is by working on management through coaching cycles. But if we think about last week's episode, how we use data to actually drive coaching cycle work, how can we take that information and use that to work on management like we work on instruction? Helping teachers see the areas of growth and responding to those areas purposefully can help us use coaching cycles effectively for management support too. And really, if we can get management in place, everything else is so much easier and everyone's lives are so much better. <laughs> teachers are not struggling as much to go to work. Kids enjoy going to school and they're going to get the most out of their day. So that's why I invited some very special guests today, Danielle and Amanda of Navigating Behavior Change, and they're going to chat with us about this topic. We're going to talk about some best practices in management, what's creating the behavior challenges we're seeing right now, which are especially significant, and how we can conduct coaching cycles to focus on behavior growth. I am so excited to welcome Amanda Wilson from Navigating Behavior Change to the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad you're here because this topic has been a hot button issue for coaches. This episode is coming out in November and it is, or October, sorry, October, and it has been an ongoing sort of need for teachers and coaches for like the past two years. You know, this, this idea of behavior support, how we can help teachers impact behavior that they see in their classrooms, why we're seeing the behaviors that we're seeing, why they're so extreme. And so I'm really glad that we're going to get hopefully some answers today to help some coaches. I know it's going to be helpful. It's it's our topic of, um, it's my topic of interest and passion. So I'm happy to, to share my input. Oh, perfect. So can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit? You could talk a little bit about that, your topic of interest, but um, also about who you are, how you ended up here, you know, what kinds of work you do right now. Sure. Uh, so yes, my name is Amanda Wilson, and uh, I will be starting, I think, my 18th year in education this year. Uh, I'm a school psychologist and a board certified behavior analyst. And as a military wife, I have had, although it's felt at times like uh you know, not the greatest um, situation to constantly move, but I've had the opportunity to work in a lot of different districts in my career, um, from very large districts to medium-sized to very small, um, and to notice the themes and the, the differences um, of need 
mm-hmm. needs and student skills across those different settings. But as a school psych and a behavior analyst, um, behavior is my passion. I, um, I started out just in a school psych role, um, but working with students with autism. And I always felt like, oh, it was really great at figuring out, you know, is this autism or is it, you know, an emotional disturbance mm-hmm. or is it a cognitive impairment? But I never really knew what to do next. And so I went back to school because I didn't like that. I didn't know what to do next. And that's when I got my BCBA. And um, I've spent the last ooh, 12 years or so working in the area of behavior. Um, I've had a lot of experiences with programmatic development um, and being a part of how how different programs uh, support students with behavioral needs. And I've moved away from that area of autism as my primary focus to the big behaviors, students with emotional disturbances. Um, And I've had a lot of experience with students with FASD as well. And so Danielle and I, that's my business partner, Navigating Behavior Change, Um, We uh, have our business where we really work to disseminate that information and support teachers and educators in learning about behavior and how to best teach behavior skills, social skills, um, and to be preventative in how we approach behavior rather than reactive because we're not firefighters and we don't want to be and prevent is where it's at. And so um, that's our role within uh, navigating behavior change. Um, But I also do still work um, in the school settings as well. That is perfect. I love what you're saying about being proactive and preventative instead of waiting for the behaviors and then having to undo a lot once they're already in place. It's so much harder to do that. So my audience is made up mostly of instructional coaches. And even though they're usually asked to focus on instruction, we know that learning doesn't happen when behavior isn't in place. Kids cannot learn whenever they're not in a good place at school. So, and I was thinking about this idea about how so much has changed in the way that we think about student behavior. So I wanted to ask how we should be thinking about classroom management and behavior as a concept. And the reason is because like when I was in college, this was a while ago, Um, We were taught about constructivism. That was like the big thing at the time was pushing constructivism. The introduction of constructivism was terrible, but like the way that it was taught to us was terrible, but that was what they were (laughs) teaching. And then whenever I started teaching, my mentor teacher bought me the book, The First Days of School by Harry and Rosemary Wong. And that was like the preferred recommendation at the time. So I feel like now we have grown so much in our understanding about the way kids learn best and the way that they, things they can control, things they can't, and what kinds of supports Mm -hmm. they need. So when we talk about management and behavior, what are some of the basic understandings that we really need to know? Well, so constructivism is really, you know, learning from experiences. And as a behavior analyst, you know, we are all about operant learning, which is learned behavior. And we, as humans, we, we learn from our environment. We learn from the consequences in our environment and behaviors are elicited by what happens um, in the environment. And so, you know, it really all ties together, but I think the core thing to keep in mind is that behavior serves a purpose. It meets a need. And so it when we engage in a behavior, whether that's, you know, tapping our desk or scratching a no- an itch on our nose um, or eloping from a classroom, it's meeting a need for us. And that's to get something or to get away from something. And I think keeping that in mind is really, really key because, you know, while behaviors may seem irrational or odd in certain contexts or situations, if we, if we don't take it personal and if we just kind of go back to that, that premise that, you know, we learn from our environment and behavior meets a need. It serves a purpose for us. We're going to be in a more proactive mindset to begin with. Right. Um, Cause the more we take behaviors personally in the classroom, the less um, likely we are to proactively and positively intervene. Right. We're going to start blaming the child, blaming the parents, blaming the situation situation. Uh, and we're going to get in a blame game rather than a, how can I teach a new skill? What can I do differently to set the environment up so that I don't see this behavior and the student doesn't have a need to use it um, and so on and so forth. So I think really thinking about behavior from that, just that premise that it serves a purpose, it meets a need and, and reframing our thinking around that is one of the most important things. 
that's really helpful. Yeah, I think I feel like as a parent, for example, you know, I mentioned to you earlier that I have a 16 month old and I also have a four year old. And I have had to spend so much time thinking about the way that I react to situations and what it is that's causing me to react this way and how I was raised and what elements of that I think were okay and what elements of that I would, I, I don't want my kids to, to be raised with. And it's so much of, of the way that we think about behavior is, uh, is, is unlearning and being aware of and unlearning so many of our own behaviors and reactions mm-hmm. to things. So I really like the way that you say that about not taking things personally. I know as a teacher, I did that more than I should have. And it was just like my, like what I naturally did when I didn't have anyone teaching me anything different. And Danielle and I often talk about the need to respond versus react because a reaction is emotional. A response is planned. And I know too, as a parent myself, there are certain times where over the years, I've been sucked into reacting a certain way. And in my head, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I know better. Right. You, this helps. isn't helpful, mm-hmm. but that emotionality takes, takes control. Right. Yeah. Um, and until I planned a new response, like actually thought it through and planned when this happens next time, I'm, I'm going to do a B or C mm-hmm. not X, Y, Z. Um, I really struggle like a lot of people to respond differently because that emotion takes over and that reaction that we have a learning history for mm-hmm. engaging in is what we, we tend to, to utilize. And so, yeah, that reacting versus responding, we want to re- respond. It's ideally more proactive and preventative, um, in nature than that emotional reaction mm-hmm. tends that to be. That makes so much sense. So if we were to ask teachers right now, what some of their biggest challenges are this year, it's usually behavior. That's what we're hearing across the board from teachers, coaches, all grade levels. Mm-hmm. What is happening that's creating these really challenging behaviors in the classroom? You know, I don't know exactly what is different, but across the country, we're hearing the same thing. Post-COVID, mm-hmm. behaviors are significantly more intense, more frequent, um, and it's classroom management is a bigger challenge uh, for teachers that Mm-hmm. than it was in the past. Um, again, I don't know the exact reason, but my suspicions would be that, you know, especially for a lot of our younger kids whose first introductions to school were Zoom, you know, uh, were online. Um, we've missed a lot of those opportunities for that pre-correction and for those building of structures and supports and safety um, within the school setting. Uh, we also had a lot of years where that response effort to participate in school was pretty darn low, right? They didn't have to do nearly as much or sustain that effort to task and attending as they do now that they're back in the classroom. And so a lot of our students are fighting that. And I see that in my own children too, that they want that easy back, right? They got through second grade just fine online, right? In their minds, right? Where we're like, oh no, this wasn't a second grade year. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think too, there's been this push for schools are back and students are back in session and we're back to holding to grade and, you know, state expectations for instruction and our students just aren't there. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a big gap between where third graders in the past have been and third graders are now. And so I think there's that pressure on teachers um, and, you know, partly maybe in some cases it's, you know, from the state or the administration, but also just in themselves that like if they're a third grader, they should be able to Mm -hmm. to do this, but they've had a lot of lost instructional time. And so I think there's a lot of mismatch between the curriculum and where the students are and where they've been. And we're seeing a lot of behaviors. Again, they need a purpose, right? To get or get away from something. And so we're seeing a lot more behavior as a result. Yeah. That makes a lot that, that, um, that gap between what they're expected to do and what they're able to do creates so much frustration. And they're going to try to avoid that or act out because they feel embarrassed or frustrated with the way that they're doing it. So yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. I also wonder how much trauma kids went through that we're just acting like didn't happen. You know, (laughs) I mean, a lot of kids lost family members, had family members. I mean, they, they, they didn't see for extended periods of time. They didn't have a quote, normal life. Like I know we shut down for a long time. We had a NICU baby. I was pregnant. We did not see people. My Mm four-year-old did not hang out with other kids for a long time because that wasn't something we could safely risk. And, um, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was hard. And so, and how many kids, I mean, I, I read some study the other day about how many children were orphaned 
throughout this time. It's a shocking number. Right, I don't remember. Right? The number. It was a lot more than I would have expected. So it's, it's truly terrible that they've gone through so many things. And then it was like, we're back to school. Phew, that's over. And it's not over. like they're right? still dealing with ramifications. I mean, it's still rampant. We still, you know, COVID is still everywhere. I, I don't know, obviously what, what it's going to be in October, but um, at the time we're recording this, it is still it's in lots of places and it's impacting a lot of people. And so I feel like school has out of desperation to get back to some sense of normalcy and just out of relief of, Oh, at least we're back at school. At least, you know, we can do our mm-hmm. normal stuff. We've just shoved under the rug, all the stuff these kids have been through and acted like that's well, that's over, but their children, right. even adults, it's not over, right. but and especially they don't know how to express. Right. They're there, they're back. Um, and, uh, you know, like, Let's move on. But yeah, so many of them faced food insecurities while they were home, or perhaps they were living in a, a home with domestic violence or physical abuse. And they had no, like they didn't have that reprieve of going to school each day, yeah. you know? And so that cumulative trauma absolutely, I think plays a part too, for many of our students. That's true. Yeah. Financial instability and parents who, um, and maybe it's not like abuse, but just the stress that parents are under that. Mm-hmm stress level didn't always create the best home environment, you know, in so many cases. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, f- I feel like that's a huge issue that we've seen. And right now financial, you know, issues are huge. Um, the cost of everything is like one and a half times of what it usually is. And so that's another level of stress that parents are under and kids are still are struggling to go to school through all of this. So I just feel like it's so many factors it's like a perfect storm in each little classroom of all these children who've been through so much and are still going through so much. And then we're like, you're back at school, let's go, you know? And it's not, not to shame right, the right. Kids, that's the nature of the, the school industry, you know, that's the way it's become. It is, absolutely. So coaches who attempt to work on coaching cycles with teachers will include um, many times observation and feedback as part of their coaching cycles. Like they'll have a pre-conference at the beginning, then they'll do some classroom work, which could be observations. It could Mm -hmm. also be, you know, modeling or co-teaching. And then they will have a debrief or a closing conversation where they provide some feedback and talk about next steps. You talked a little bit whenever we're emailing about some topics we could talk about, and I've seen this on your Instagram as well, about um, ABC data collection, because I think that's a tool that coaches could Mm -hmm. use with teachers during that observation time. And it would really give them some specific things to talk about during this closing dialogue so they could set some next steps together. Absolutely. And the thing I would love about ABC data collection, that's, you know, antecedent behavior consequence. And when I talked before about how uh, um, applied behavior analysis is really about those learned operant behaviors, that three-term contingency of antecedent behavior consequence, that's what we're referring to. So the antecedent in the environment elicits the behavior and then the consequence, whether it pays off or is a cost is what increases or decreases the likelihood of that behavior being utilized again in the future by the student. Mm-hmm. Um, or the adults, uh, because it works, you know, we all engage in, you know, behaviors in that three-term contingency. So where that could be key for coaches is looking at, um, sometimes being that outside eye, you know, if, I don't know, if, um, you know, I've been in consultant positions and sometimes it's where I've been asked to come in because someone else has recognized there's a need <clears throat> or teachers have self-requested consultation, right? And obviously how those two play out, you know, can be very different um, versus, you know, wanting the feedback and to grow versus, you know, it being, you know, being voluntold. Yes. Right. right. Um, And so sometimes that outsider coming in and observing can be really helpful in looking at what's at play because we're so caught up in the situation that we miss those antecedents or we miss that our response is what is actually likely maintaining it. And when I say that, like, um, uh, so sometimes students will engage in very kind of provocative behaviors, um, to really get a big reaction. Right. And what they'll get is like three minutes of direct one-on-one scolding. Right. Mm-hmm. And we think, you know, potentially, oh, well, I'm, I'm telling him that that's not appropriate and I'm mad and he knows that, but the student might be thinking this is predictable. It's prolonged. It's high quality. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. And they're getting a payoff mm-hmm. where we might think it's a cost, a punishment, but it's really a payoff. And so sometimes that coach or consultant coming in can really look at those and be like, Hmm, I think something else is going on here, right? It's not decreasing. It's actually increasing. Or are you aware that you're doing this? 
likewise, kind of looking at those antecedent analysis um, of, or those interaction analyses, I, I, I mean, so like, it's not what you said, but it's how you said it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or how many times are we giving an instruction or a demand versus neutral feedback versus praise and kind of looking at those and seeing what kind of ABCs follow that as well. And I think that can be really key too, because Danielle and I have gone in and done observations where, you know, there's 72 demands and zero occurrences of praise in you know, a 30 minute period. Well, yeah, of course they don't like school, right? They're just getting bossed around, um, have no choice, have no say, um, there's no positives. Um, and so looking at that as well can be really, really beneficial, I think, because it's easy. just like we talked about reacting and responding. It's easy to just kind of go about our day and react. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's easy to miss the opportunities to praise and to give the positives because we got, other kids to see and things to get ready for the next lesson. We've got a million things on our plate as educators. And sometimes it takes that, that other person kind of observing those situations and looking at those antecedents and consequences in relation to those behaviors to give a little insight mm-hmm. into what may be maintaining those behaviors or what might be eliciting those behaviors. So if you're recording this, you just do like a three column chart. And then you have the antecedent, mm-hmm. okay, behavior and the consequence, and you just like record across. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I'm taking my data, yeah, um, it doesn't need to be on a, you know, it could be on a sticky note. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just do ABC across. And sometimes what I put in the C um, is A, because okay. it's the next antecedent, right? For the next behavior that's happening, right? Because sometimes our response then elicits another behavior. Mm-hmm that might be less than desirable. Um, and so then you can kind of look at that and look at, hmm, am I helping or hurting? <laughs> Oops, I'm hurting, yeah. you know, I'm not making the situation any better um, by how I'm responding. Um, but yes, you know, I think a lot of people are like overwhelmed by the idea of data collection, but a whiteboard, a sticky mm-hmm. note, a piece of paper with ABC scratched across it, you know, um, or if you, you really want to make it easy, um, pre-make one where you just check the, what happened, right? So you're not having to even write, you know, you're just checking boxes. Okay. Like what kinds of things would you, would you include in those boxes? So antecedents are things that happen in the environment. Um, and those would be things like instruction given, um, or, um, told no denied request, Uh um, conflict with peer, you know, maybe a peer called them a name or something, things like that. They're not things the student does. The behaviors would be the things that the student does. Or if you're taking data on the teacher, you know, it would be the antecedents might be something like student called out. Teacher behaviors could be like um, ignored um, or, you know, gave student two minutes of direct scolding. Um, And then the consequences would be, you know, that what was that payoff for that cost? And it's what happened immediately after. So it's not like, oh, they got sent to the office 20 minutes later um, or they had to miss their recess later that day. It's what happened right afterwards, you know? So, um, and that's the hard part, I think, for a lot of people to think about it, but it's that immediate response because we have Mm -hmm. a tendency to want to kind of think about those big punishments as, you know, what will increase, you know, or or decrease those behaviors, but it's what actually happens right afterwards that is often far more powerful in meeting that need than any delayed payoff or delayed consequence. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like if, like if, if the student behavior is um, that they argue with the teacher, like the teacher says, no student argues and says, but I want to, right. Mm-hmm. And then the consequence would be, could be potentially what, like, what is an example of that? Um, so if the, the teacher says no and denies a request, then the student argues if the teacher engages in that, mm-hmm. right. Then that payoff is they're gaining some attention, right? Mm-hmm. So teacher engaged, um, you know, for one-on-one attention, or mm-hmm. it could be that the teacher walked away, right? And so the student is, you know, got away from the proximity of the adult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be that the teacher says, okay, fine, you don't have to do it. Well, they got out of the work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more that immediate um, payoff that makes that, that difference and whether you're going likely to see that behavior again versus missing recess later or. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I'm picturing in classrooms that are, that sometimes there's this weird dynamic that you're like, oh my gosh, like the other children are in on it. Now you see classrooms where then the other kids will start to say, no, it's because this, and you did this, you said that. 
And then it's like really scary. I'm like, I've seen rooms where you're like, oh my gosh, this has gotten very badly out of hand because the other kids will now engage. Things go south real fast. Yeah. They, that's the consequences that now they're all like on it. They're like a team now. And they're like all fighting for this child's right to do what they asked to do or something, you know, and that mm-hmm. as an adult to me, that's terrifying. <laughs> I'm like, how did this get to this point? You know, that's like a nightmare right. to me, but there are some classrooms that function that way. Right. There are. And so the, the benefit of looking at the ABCs of situations like that is that you can then identify what you can do on the front end, as far as those antecedents Mm -hmm. and teaching skills and teaching alternatives uh, so that you're not then dealing with that chaos of that situation, Mm -hmm. because that's, that's chaotic. And that's real hard. Like it's hard to come back from that without it happening again. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you consider, okay, what are, what are the consistent, you know, triggers for that behavior and the situation happening? What can I do differently in the environment? What can I pre-correct? What can I teach? Mm -hmm. What can I do to um, ensure they understand expectations Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth so that you're being preventative um, to keep that from happening? Yeah. Because it's not ideal. I love that. Like you can look for patterns and you can look like make, you know, together Mm -hmm. you can brainstorm and and come up with some possibilities. And, and I like the way you, you differentiated there. Like you can, you can explicitly teach certain things. You can set up certain like rituals and routines. You can, you know, change the environment, the way it's functioned, like even just like physically the space, if that's the culprit. Mm-hmm. Um, if you find the root cause, you can address it in lots of different ways. It's not always just about what are you going to say in that moment that's different. Right. Or if it's a student who, you know, is always arguing, well, I want to do this or that. Well, then you can use a, a great prevent strategy. Like, instructional choice Mm -hmm. ahead of time, right? So that you're not even having to, you're just preventatively providing those choices. Hey, it's time for reading. Do you want to sit here or there? Do you want to read this or that? You know, whatever it may be, there are options you're okay with, but you're giving them that that bit of control or say, and more likely to see less of that behavior. So you're starting to get at something that I'm very curious about because the challenge of being an instructional coach is that, well, we don't always have the language to talk about behavior because you figure out a system that works for you. And then you go into other classrooms and none of the things that were in place in your classroom are necessarily in place in those rooms. So the things that you were going to, that you could possibly try are not necessarily going to work because it's a different room. It's a different teacher, a different mm-hmm. dynamic. Everything is different. I mean, I was in one classroom where the teacher had, I mean, even on a most basic level, she had set up her, her projector and her, like her, um, uh, document camera where she had to face the front of the room to write on it. So all the kids were behind her. Right. <laughs> Very like tangible example. Obviously there's lots uh-huh. of you know, subtle things in that, but even just that one thing, I was like, oh, this is bad. This is not a good plan. Guys. Right. You know, it just, it was the most obvious thing in the world. I was like, you could flip it. Mm-hmm. If you look that, you can see the children. You don't have to see, you know what you're writing. You're writing it on the paper. You can, you can, but you have to see the children. And she was like, oh, and we obviously I said it in a much different way than that, but um, but it was, it's like, everything is so different that you walk into your rooms, these rooms and you're like, how do I, what do I say that's going to make an impact here? What can I give them if they're not sure where to start? Cause many times teachers are not sure where to start, even whether they're asking for help or not, they don't know what to do. Right. So what are some basic like tier one strategies that would, that are generally effective that, that coaches can recommend to teachers or modeling classrooms that would actually support the behavior, regardless mm-hmm. of how different their rooms function. I think uh, this is like our big, big passion area because for years, Danielle and I have been in situations where we are working with tier three students Mm -hmm. and we are writing tier three plans, but guess what we're writing into those plans? The missing in tier one strategies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is something that we've just witnessed time and time again as the missing link. Um, And so there are so many great tier one strategies that are low cost and high efficacy, big bang for your buck. So things like instructional choice, behavior specific praise, uh, pre-correction, just looking at environmental supports um, and, you know, like the layout of the room, um, uh, active supervision, right? It's not just a body, like there's a process to active supervision uh, so that you are scanning and attending and reinforcing, you know, the desired behaviors and prompting other behaviors or skills as needed. Um, And then, uh, you know, like just making sure those are in place. Those are some good core ones that are easy, low cost, high efficacy, um, and doing them well, 
doing them right. And I think you brought up a really good point too, that sometimes the teachers don't know where to start. And I'm sure you've been in the situation where you walk in as the consultant or the coach and you're like, holy moly, there's like 433 things that need to happen differently in this classroom. Right. But we can't do them all at once. We got to start with one, but I need the teacher's buy-in on what that one is going to be. Right. And so oftentimes you might think, or I, I've thought in the past, um, this is the priority, but I can't get the buy-in there. Mm-hmm. And so, so I have to go with something else where I can get that buy-in. And sometimes it's a matter, I think of finding, um, finding that, that intervention or that change that is the simplest, that will also give a big outcome to get them on board for further support mm-hmm. and, and, and really kind of help shift their mindset that this isn't that hard. We can do this. We can do it together and I'll guide you. Um, and we're going to move towards, you know, increasing these outcomes for our students. And we're going to do that through our tier one strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times teachers want to jump to, you know, bigger interventions or people will recommend bigger interventions, but if those missing tier ones aren't in place, we we can do more harm than good. Uh, we're also going to likely burn out the teacher. We might actually implement interventions that aren't necessary and backing it up and looking at those core, you know, environmental and classroom supports that really should be in place is where I always try to start Mm -hmm. with those teams. Yes, for sure. And that's, that's exactly what it is. Teachers will often focus on individual students that they're seeing that are not really doing what they're being asked or they're not following directions or whatever, but there's often a pattern across the room of other issues that are constantly happening. And then those mm-hmm. kids just happen to be maybe more triggering to the teacher, but there are, there's, it's not like those are just the only cases that they're seeing. There's, usually, there's often things that could be done differently across the mm-hmm. board. And I think too, a lot of times we'll hear, well, I do that. I do that. I do that. I use yeah. behavior specific phrase, but then you do that interaction analysis and you see, well, but you're not, or, um, yeah, I use instructional choice, but they're using it response when the behavior happens versus preventatively, or they're missing steps to using, you know, um, act of responding, you know, accurately and appropriately or using it, you know, not using it enough. And so a lot of times that can just be the pushback. They're like, I'm doing that. Well, let's look at, let's make sure, let's look at a breakdown of all those steps mm-hmm. and let's see if you're missing any, you know, because why would we want to go to something more if like, let's just check this first. And so that's an area to the, or a way that you can kind of get that in to look closely at what they say they're doing to see if there's any missing steps because that, that impacts the fidelity of the implementation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that, that having the data to reference is so important. And without it, I don't think the conversation can be as meaningful because it is easy to say, I do that or I do this or I tried that and it doesn't work. And that way you can go back right. to the data and say, this is what's actually happening. And let's figure out what we can do with what we're actually mm-hmm. Um, right. I think a real quick question that I, I was thinking of as you were you were explaining some of the tier one um, strategies. When I, what are your thoughts on like certain programs like um, Boys Town or things that explicitly in, like you're supposed to explicitly introduce social skills and um, like you teach them explicitly the kids practice. I mean it's pretty rigid and there's some other issues that I have with it. But the part that I did like about Boys Town was that the the social skills are taught explicitly and the mm-hmm. kids. And then you have language to come back to when they are not doing the thing. You can go back to what you taught them. Mm-hmm. That's what I liked about it. But I, what are your thoughts on right. that? I'm not familiar with. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with boys' time specifically, but um, I've I am familiar with like second steps um, and um, uh, skill streaming, for example, and that SEL curriculum. And I do I think there's one there's a great need for SEL instruction for our students. Um, and I think the more explicit, the better. And that's from a behavior analyst's viewpoint in that, you know, I'm sure you've heard teachers say to you, well, he, he can tell me what he should do, but he's not doing it. Right. Um, or he did it yesterday, but he didn't do it today. Right. Uh-huh. If he wants to referring to those behavior, those social skills, you know, resolving conflicts and whatever. And I think the more explicit and the more we practice those skills, the more likely they are to generalize. Because when I hear a teacher say that to me, what I hear is they haven't generalized the skill across people or settings or time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't practiced it enough. And I think we have a tendency to um, want to just talk at and tell them what they need to do 
but not necessarily take that same direct instruction approach that we do to reading and math and writing. And we need to do the same thing when it comes to, to behavior and social skills, yeah. because our students aren't learning that at home. Um, they aren't learning that in the community and it's confounded by the COVID situation and the isolation um, and all the traumas, but we need to be just as explicit. Um, and this is actually something Danielle and I, we frequently teach on this topic uh, of how do you explicitly teach behavior and social skills? Mm-hmm. How do you teach them so that the student is able to use them across people's settings and time? Uh, and how do you bring break those skills down, just like you do the steps of, you know, teaching reading. You don't teach comprehension until they can decode. You don't work on decoding until they have letter sounds and letter identification. There's so many sequential steps. There's that scope and sequence that you have to utilize. And really the same thing should be true for, for behavior and social skills. And unfortunately there aren't a whole lot of evidence-based curriculums out there. And even the ones that do exist, um, they're great for like that tier one, but when you have those students that need more intensive, they aren't quite explicit enough even for them. And so then you have to really collaborate and consult with someone who has more of a skill set and how to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true that, that even kids who do maybe learn social skills at home, they may not be the ones that the school values. You know, culturally, there are so many differences in the way that we say, oh, uh-huh. this is the way we greet someone. This is the way that we talk to adults. This is the way that we interact with peers. That looks different in different households. And then they go to school and school is like, this is how we do it, you know? And it's kind of like, you should know this. And then after they've been in school for several years, teachers are like, oh, they should already know how to do that. And like, we have, you just teach it to them. Wait. If they knew how to do it, they'd probably do it because their life would be a lot easier that way. They would right. love to get through their day without losing it, without mm-hmm. having a meltdown. They would enjoy that probably. And they would like to be able to participate on the fun stuff that you're doing. Just teach them the skills. They don't have the skills. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So that's a conversation I not agree more. I have a lot with teachers, especially those in upper elementary, you know, mm-hmm. and then, I mean, that's mostly who I worked with was elementary teachers. And, you know, whenever I was on a campus and I've also had to talk with middle school teachers about it, but the, the elementary teachers, once the kids are in third, fourth, fifth grade, they expect that kids already know what some of the basics are. And even classroom to classroom things differ. And so what your rules are may look very exactly. different than anybody else's. So. Exactly. And if it's a school too, that, you know, is high trauma or low SES, mm-hmm there's going to be a greater need for that to be modeled and practiced and reinforced over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one and dones don't work just like yeah. you don't teach them the word, you know, you know, those, those sight words and have them memorize it right away. So. Yeah. They need practice and they need time and they need to come back to that same thing. This is how we do it. Let's practice again today. The year mm-hmm. that I did that, that I started doing that, it just, it was like so helpful to my kids. And I'm so glad that I did because it was a rough year. (laughs) (laughs) They they needed a lot. And it was, that was so helpful to me front loading all those at like throughout the year, making sure that we took a little bit of time every day to practice something because they needed a constant practice. And I felt like if they just, they weren't getting, I had to build in the time. I had to find the time because it was going to save me time later, obviously. And it also was going to help them so much in the long run, just having the basic skills and help me just to have a language, like you mentioned earlier, to have a language to say in the different situations. That's what I needed the most. What Mm -hmm. do I say in this moment? That's actually going to help them come back to the thing that we had practiced together. That's going to remind them of what they're supposed to do in this moment, because I'm, mm-hmm. I just want to react and get really frustrated and just say, just do what I asked you to do, you know, but that's not going to help any, it's not going to work. It's just going to be awful. Right. Exactly. So, right. Calm down spaces is something I want to ask you about because they are, they're frequently found in classrooms right now. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those spaces and maybe what we could put in them and how they could be benefit kids. How can they be used? So the best way for them to be used is pr- like proactive. Mm-hmm. actively. And so really it's about teaching the students how to use them. So when do they go? What do they do when they're there? How long do they stay there? What does it look like and sound like when they transition back to the classroom or the their desk area um, when they're done there? And really explicitly teaching and practicing all of that, because if it comes down to they're kind of starting to escalate or they are escalated and you're like, go to the calm down area. Well, they're probably not going to, and they're not going to know what to do there. And it's not going to be useful. It's going to become something frustrating that they don't want any part of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then you'll see the kids really digging their heels in that they don't want to go. So it really comes down to that proactive teaching 
teaching of what, where do they go? What do they do for how long? And then the expectations upon the return, um, teaching those, whether it be breathing techniques, um, whether it be, you know, to engage in, you know, um, coloring Sudoku, like just putting those parameters on that, um, you know, because some kids need something to interrupt their thoughts and those internal thoughts they have others need just to kind of have quiet, um, but there should be some limitations on it because you don't want to have the students only wanting to be in that area. Right? right. So it's kind of that balancing act of, you know, setting those expectations, but giving them what they need, but teach it ahead of time, practice ahead of time, and then take, take note of their precursor behaviors, those early signs that something is wrong. And that's your point of intervention. Don't wait until mm-hmm. they're, they're flipping desks and screaming and cursing at you. But when they put their head down on their desk or they scrunch their fists and their, their eyebrows and you know, like something is coming, that's your time to prompt. Mm -hmm. That's your time to remind them, Hey, this is available to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same would be true if you, you know, your, your break is a a walk versus a calm down space. Um, Whatever you're utilizing it, it, you want your point of intervention to be those earliest signs that something is amiss. And you want to pre-teach and practice those expectations because what they have muscle memory for is flipping their desks and screaming. And you need to build new muscle memory for that new response of going to that area or taking a walk or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Because when they lose that rationality, they fall back on what they know. Yes. And we need to replace that. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking about some of the recommendations that you're making and, and I'm, I'm envisioning speaking with with teachers. And some teachers are excited to try something new because they can see that something's not working. But like we mentioned, behavior management is so personal. And so much of it comes from like our beliefs about like people and children and how they grow and how they learn. Mm -hmm. What are some ways or tips that you have for coaches to have a dialogue about trying something different behavior management without just offending the teacher and and shutting them down right from the beginning? It, It, I feel like it's consultation is such an art form. Would you agree? Yes. It's an art form, right? Um, because again, I may walk in and think, oh my gosh, this is awful. And like, how do they even have a teaching license? You know, I've had that thought. Or, wow, this person is just so new and so overwhelmed and they probably don't know where to start. But it's that art form of like trying to get that buy-in. I always go back to the rationale and the buy-in. Where can I get that? Um, and I can remember a teacher that I consulted with many years ago when I was a new consultant. And I remember having to wake him up for consultation. From his classroom? He was in his classroom, asleep in his rocking chair during his prep period when he had told me he would do things like tell me we'd schedule an email back and forth and schedule a consultation. I'd show up and the principal would be like, he's on a field trip. And he knew that. Uh-huh. Like he would do anything he could to avoid, yes. right? Um, and he was so difficult to engage in consultation and he needed a lot of supports. Yeah. Um, and his classroom was a hot mess, but I had to just find that little area where he did want help. And okay. even though I didn't think it was my priority or even a priority at all, supporting him in some way. Okay. Um, I know that Danielle would frequently go in and say, just what can I help you with? Can I give you a break for 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. Can I make copies for you? Um, do you need some water? Like, and just trying to work on that rapport and that relationship and essentially establishing ourselves as someone reinforcing that they, they find value in being around. And so sometimes we've had to go far as far as just how can I help? Um, but then finding those little footholds and really building up and working towards, um, because some teachers are far more defensive than others, especially the ones who've been told they need the consultation uh-huh. versus those who have volunteered for it. Um, and, and selling that buy-in once you do sell that rationale, here's how it'll benefit you. Here's how it'll make your life easier. Here's how it's going to benefit your students. Um, and again, start small, pick one student to, to intervene with, or to make a change with, um, you know, map out some different responses for them and say, what, let's go through these. You pick which one you want to try. Um, and I often find myself, I know the, the listeners can't see me. I'm tipping my hands. Like they're on a scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say, what do you want to deal with? Do you want to deal with the behaviors that are interrupting, interrupting, disruptive? You can't teach anyways, or do you want to take a little time 
work on this so you can get to a lot more instruction. Um, and I often go back to that scale in my, my discussions with teachers, but what, where do you want to put your energy? You're, you're, you're using your energy, you're putting it somewhere, mm-hmm. but where can we put it? How can we use it so that it's, you're working smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. How can I coach, like, let's say we've got some buy-in, but sometimes you work with a teacher and then you, you think that they're getting it <laughs> and you're doing things together and you're trying to get something out that's different and new, and then you leave and it all goes back to the way that it was. So how can a coach help a teacher implement a new behavior strategy in a way that actually fits? That I think is where behavior skills training comes in. Okay. Um, and this is an evidence-based, um, instructional methodology and it is so easy and it's really, you provide instruction, you model it, you practice it and you give feedback and you do that as much as you need. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's often just like we will tell the kids what they need to do different. Sometimes as consultants, we'll tell the staff what they need to do different, but we don't actually model it. We don't problem solve it with it. We don't practice it and we don't give the feedback that we need to, because sometimes the feedback is the hard part that makes us feel uncomfortable. So we avoid it ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, the avoid, you know, avoid giving it. But if we provide that instruction, maybe we write the steps out, maybe we provide them verbally, but we need to definitely model practice and give feedback. Those are often missing. Um, we'll give instructions, we'll model, but the practice and feedback, especially I think are often less left off. But if we can get to that, we're more likely to see that sustained change um, in the, the staff behavior mm-hmm. if we use the behavior skills training. Yeah, I love that because that can align with using kind of a gradual release model in coaching cycles. If you, you know, if you're modeling, then you're coaching mm-hmm. and then you're observing, you're providing feedback over time. That's the same, that's a similar right. process. Right. Cause it's kind of the see one, do one, you know, teach yeah. one. Um, but just really focusing on that practice and the feedback. Mm-hmm. Um And recognizing too, what is and isn't in a particular teacher's wheelhouse. So if they're really not comfortable with something, more practice, more feedback, more modeling um, versus, you know, someone who that that is in a wheelhouse, you might be able to do a little bit less. That makes sense. Yeah. So thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. And I just want you to be able to share where people can find you online so they can learn more from you, um, whether that's. Um, a site or your social media, or, or even if they can contact you in person, if you're in your area, I don't know, do you travel for your consulting? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, actually, Danielle and I will be in West Virginia next week. Um, So um, we do do some traveling. We do a lot of professional development virtually for school districts and um, educational associations. Um, And uh, they can find us on Instagram at Navigating Behavior Change uh, or online at navigatingbehaviorchange.com. And we do have a um, a lot of blogs and resources. We actually just posted a brand new free webinar um, on addressing work refusal in the classroom, kind of some tier one strategies, three steps to take um, before you jump to the big intervention. What can you do just, you know, um, as a core intervention to decrease that academic work refusal? Um, And uh, we have a membership site too, as well, where we um, provide mentoring and support and resources to educators. Um, And again, I had a great time talking with you. So thank you so much for having me here today. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. I love that. I hope hope some people hit you up and maybe you can even do some work with their school because we need it right now. Schools are suffering. So, <laughs> so I'm so they glad are. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you. That was some great information from Amanda. I'm so glad that she was able to join us today because I'm sure you're walking away with some great tips that you can use with teachers, a really great approach for data collection that you can use during your coaching cycles and the importance of modeling in, in the classroom, working alongside the teacher to practice. I feel like co-teaching is a great place to practice. Um, And you can also practice during your pre-conferences and then giving them that observational feedback so we can keep uh, perpetuating and building that, that learning cycle for them. I mean, coaching cycles are a great way to implement the learning that we talked about today. In episode 78 of this podcast, you can learn about model classrooms, why you need one and what to do with one, what to do with it when you get one. And that could be helpful in building some different behavior management strategies. Sometimes it's hard for teachers to envision what it looks like, but if you have a classroom, you can say, hey, we've been working on providing choice as a proactive measure, then they can go visit that classroom or watch a little recording of it and get that idea about how to use it in their own classroom. 
In episode 80, I share about getting in the door with a defined role, and that's a coaching call. Um, it's a great way to, you know, having your having your role really defined and having a coaching menu, showing teachers that one of the things that you can do is provide behavior support is a good way to get in those classrooms, especially right now because teachers want the help. And in episode 79, I talk about video coaching with Corey Camp of Sydney. Video coaching is a great tool that you can use to do some of this work. If a teacher is struggling to see what the issue is, then you can actually have them record themselves and they can envision it easier because they see it right in front of them. They could do their own ABC data collection on their own teaching and how impactful would that be? So check out episode 79 for that information. I actually have a free download for you as well. And I'm super excited to share it. This is a behavior management strategy that I used whenever I worked with teachers in their classroom. And it's a coaching man uh, classroom management for coaches document. It includes details on how to implement a really simple behavior, simple behavior plan when you're coaching in a classroom. So it's something you could build a coaching cycle around where you model it, you co-teach around it, and then you observe them. And um, they actually can watch you do that in the classroom. And then you watch them implement it and give them the feedback. So I really recommend trying it out, especially if you're working with classrooms that you cannot seem to figure out what to do to support them. I have an episode later in this season coming out about how I use this program, but you can grab the download and it's a really great start if you want to try it out. That will be at buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 123, episode 123 in the capital E. Next week, in episode 20, 124, we're going to chat with Dr. Jane Kesey about differentiating coaching cycles. We'll look at how personality traits influence how teachers learn and think. And then we'll come up with some ways to respond to different kinds of teachers. So definitely you'll want to listen to that episode. It's got a lot of good stuff in it. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.